You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. You know, David wrote most of the Psalms, but not all of them. And a number of them were written by David's worship leader named Asaph. And probably Asaph's most famous Psalm is Psalm 73 because he struggles with an issue that just about everybody struggles with from time to time. If God is good, then why do righteous people suffer while wicked people prosper? You ever ask yourself that question? Well, that's what Asaph asked in this psalm, and I want to read a few lines of it. I, uh, I want to sing a few lines of it. <laughs> it is a song. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Has God been good to you? Asaph was convinced that God had been good to him, but he began to doubt God's overall goodness as he looked at the world. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. Often the worst people live a long and happy life, don't they? And they die in their sleep. And, and when David says their body is fat, that was a good thing back then because that was before the invention of, of cheap, uh, high-cal food. And so you could tell a person's economic status by just whether they were gaunt or well-fed. They are not in trouble as other men. They don't have the problems that the rest of us do, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue parades throughout the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Asaph says the lives, the wicked, are often easy lives, and so they have the, the impression that they control their lives. And they can defy God. They can do whatever they want, and they can oppress other people. And they get away with it. And Asaph says, on the other hand, I've, I've tried to put sin to death. I've tried to live a good life, and I just get chastened by God. You ever feel that way? Why, if God is good, do bad people prosper and good people suffer? If God is just, why is there so much injustice in the world? Well, that's the question I, I want us to think about as we go to Esther 5 this morning. So let's pray, and let's just pray silently and ask God to speak to you through his word 
and then I'll, uh, I'll close. Father, you've called us to walk by faith in what you say rather than in the way things th seem. And I pray you'll speak to us out of the scriptures and help us to see life as it really is and not as we think it is, that we might honor you and obey your commandments. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The story of Esther occurs about five centuries before Christ. And it occurs in a time that Israel is part of the Persian Empire, ruled by Xerxes I. It's the only book in the Bible that never mentions God by name. And yet God's hand runs all the way through it as he saves a people who have primarily forgotten him. Chapters 5 through 7 is the climax of the book. It's, it's where the arc of the story suddenly changes by a, a series of uh, strange coincidences. And I think in a lot of ways, these three chapters at least partially answer Asaph's question and our question about why isn't God doing something about the wicked today? Let's review the story. Esther is a young Jewish woman who becomes the queen of Persia after Xerxes deposes the former queen Vashti for having a mind of her own. Uh, Esther doesn't tell Xerxes that she's Jewish on the counsel of her uncle and guardian, or cousin and guardian Mordecai. He appoints, Xerxes appoints a man named Haman as his prime minister and commands that everybody bows down to Haman in respect, but Mordecai refuses, and this makes Haman so angry that he decides not only to kill Mordecai, but to kill all the Jews. So he amasses a huge bribe to give to Xerxes to uh, issue a royal proclamation that on a certain day, about a year from now, every Jewish man, woman, and child will be put to death and all their property confiscated. When Mordecai hears about the decree, he gets word to his cousin Esther and tells her, you alone are in a position to influence the king. And Esther replies, no one can go to the king unless they're invited to come. And I haven't seen the king in 30 days. I, he seems to have forgotten me. And Mordecai says, be that as it may, you are in a position to do something, you have to do it. And Esther consents, she says, if I perish, I perish. And so she and her servants fast and pray for three days. And that picks up where the pick story picks up right now. Now it came about on the third day, the third day of Esther's fast, that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. Now, as Esther told Mordecai, it was against the law for anyone to come to see the king unbidden. You had to be invited in. 
and the penalty for coming into the king's presence without being invited was death. Unless the king would extend his scepter and show that you were welcome in his presence. And so Esther's taking quite a risk here. She doesn't, she is risking her life in actually coming to the king. And, and the decks, deck is kind of stacked against her. Because she's asking the king to reverse an irreversible decree. Because in Persia, the king issued a decree, it became law, and you couldn't change the laws in Persia. Plus, you're asking the king to give up a huge bribe that he's received from, from Haman to do this. Plus, you're asking a politician to admit to everyone that the policy he pursued was wrong. And how many times have you ever heard a politician do that? Plus, she's making an enemy of the second most powerful man in the, in the kingdom because Haman is known as the, the hater of the Jews, the enemy of the Jews. And she's saying, by the way, I'm Jewish. And she's revealing to the king a fact she never told him before, that she's Jewish and whose side are you on? Theirs or mine. So you can see why Esther has been praying for three days. Proverbs 21.1 says that the King's heart is in the hands of the Lord. It's like channels of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. That's why she's been praying. She's praying that God will grant her favor in the eyes of Xerxes. So let's see what happens. When the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter, I, I suppose, as a sign of gratitude or submission. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be given to you. We've seen Xerxes is not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But he realizes that for Esther to risk her life, she must be really concerned about something. So he says, says, tell me what you need. Tell me what you want. But Esther surprises us. Esther said, if it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Now you think, why doesn't Esther use this opportunity when the king says, I'll give you anything you want, even to half my kingdom, which he's probably exaggerating. But why doesn't she use this moment to lay out a request? I, I was helped by Rabbi David Foreman in his book, uh, The Queen You Thought You Knew. He, he makes the point, what could Esther say? She can't make a moral argument and, and say, you know, it would be wrong to kill these people because what's, Xerxes is not a moral man. And he'll say something like, let's just leave the affairs of state to, to us and you take care of the harem, little lady. Or he would say, you know, that's under Haman, and you, you need to talk to him about that. There's really no, she can't approach him as queen and say, this is the right thing to do. Because when Vashti did that, she got fired. So what's she going to say? So Esther instead, rather than making her request and making it in the court in front of everybody, she simply asks, the king to come to a banquet he, she's already prepared for him. But why does she ask Haman to be included? Because that was very unusual. Let's read on, see. 
Then the king said, bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. As they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? For it will be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be done. Now, now Esther is alone with the king and Haman. You see, this is the time, right? This is the time to, to make a request. So Esther replied, my petition and my request is, if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king desires. Why does Esther delay? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, but it turns out it's a good thing she does. Let's read the rest of the story. Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. It was very rare, if ever, that any man would have dinner with the queen other than the king. So Haman's thinking, not only has Xerxes made me next to him in power, but now Esther's on my side too, and she's favored me, so he is happy as a lark until he walks outside. But when, he saw Haman, when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with rage, with anger against Mordecai. All the problems started back in chapter 3 when the king makes Haman prime minister and, and issues a command, everybody's to bow down to Haman. And Mordecai refuses to bow down to him. And that's when Haman gets angry and decides, not only am I going to have Mordecai killed, I'm going to kill all the Jews. And now, even after that proclamation has been made public, now Mordecai doesn't even stand up when he's there. And Haman feels so disrespected, he is angry. Haman controlled himself, however, and went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches, and the number of his sons, and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king, Haman also said, even Esther, the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Haman is one of those guys who has a list in his head. All the things that make me special, right? And like everybody with that list, it's never enough. Yet all this does not satisfy me. Every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate, then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, have a gallows 50 cubits high, that'd be about 75 feet tall, made, and in the morning, ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it, and then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Mordecai's wife and friends don't tell him, forget about Mordecai. They don't say, forgive Mordecai. They just say, kill him. Get rid of him. Build a gallows. That tells me that they didn't have building permits back then. Build a gallows, have it built, and then have him hang. Go, go get permission from the king to kill him and kill him before you go to the banquet. And then you'll, you'll have a, a nice dinner. 
That's basically what they Do you have a Mordecai in your life? Do you have somebody that, that spoils all the things that should please you because you're just so angry at them? It may not work out well for you. Let's, let's read on. During that night, the king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the books of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. When a king can't sleep, the thing to put him to sleep the fastest is government records. That's, that's the idea here. It's better than Salmanax. It was found what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigfana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. After Esther became queen, Mordecai overheard these two guys plotting to assassinate the king. Mordecai gets word to Esther. Esther tells Xerxes. Xerxes investigates and executes these guys. It's all written down and then forgotten. And so now, finally, he is reminded of what Mordecai did for him. The king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So the king said, who is in the court? Now, remember, this is the middle of the night. It's a strange, it's a strange question, isn't it? Nobody's in the court. I mean, who would be in the court in the middle of the night? except there is somebody. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he prepared for him. Haman is so excited that he's going to get rid of Mordecai that he can't wait till morning. He goes to the king now just in case the king might be awake or at least he'll be first in line to see the king tomorrow to get this thing done. Do you see the irony here? The king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So, king, so Haman came in, and the king said, Remember, when you go to see the king, the king speaks first. Right? So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? And all of his thoughts about Mordecai are forgotten because he, he gets to set his own reward here. He, he's, oh good, I get to ask for whatever I want. This is wonderful. Then Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king desires to honor, which we all know who will be, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes. And let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. This is only a narcissist would, 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 would say, this is what I want. That's Haman, okay? The king said to Haman, good idea. Take quickly the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai, the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. 
So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done for the man whom the king desires to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home, mourning with his head covered. I mean, this is so humiliating. The guy he was going to hang, he has to honor in front of everybody. Gets worse. Haman recounts to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that happened to them. Then his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Why didn't you tell me that yesterday? I only did what you told me to do, and now that it's blown up in my face, I say, well, we knew that was going to happen. While they were still talking with him, you see the, how the series of events are piling up here? It's just one thing happening after another. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day, also as they drank their wine at the banquet, at the second banquet, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. And now Esther finally makes her request. This is the big moment here. The queen, then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now, if we'd only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Notice what Esther does. Esther doesn't come as the queen, saying, this is what you need to do, king. Esther doesn't come as the queen's mom, saying, you better fix this. She comes as his wife. She says, someone is trying to kill me, and I need your protection. And immediately Xerxes' pride and protective nature as her husband is aroused. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, who is he? And where is he? Who would presume to do thus? Esther said, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. And all of a sudden, Haman realized that Esther did not invite him to the banquet to honor him, but to trap him. You see, this way he has no room to maneuver. He can't pull some strings. He can't get a group against him. He can't kill Esther. He can't kill the king. He is just trapped. Then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. The king arose in his fierce anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. This is the first time we've ever seen Xerxes not act impulsively. He, he leaves the room, he's so mad, so he can get his head straight. Isn't that interesting? And it still gets, it gets, it gets even worse for Haman. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther 
for he saw that harm had been determined him against, against him by the king. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? And the word went out from the king's mouth. They covered Haman's face. They, the guards arrested Haman. They put a, hip, a hood over his head so the king wouldn't have to look at him anymore. It was a common practice uh, in those days. Then Harbanah, one of the eunuchs, who were before the king said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which they had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. You see how this section is the climax of the story? Now, all the Jews' problems are not solved yet. We've got a number of more chapters. But this is the turning point. This is where everything is reversed. Who's at the top at the beginning of chapter 5? Haman. Who's at the bottom of a 75-foot rope at the end of chapter 7? Haman. And that's the answer that Asaph discovers to the question, why do the wicked prosper? Look what he says. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. Asaph doesn't go public with his doubts about God's goodness. He doesn't want to disrupt anyone's faith. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Not until I came to God. I brought my questions to God. I asked, God, what, what am I missing here? Surely you set them in slippery places. Can you see how Haman was in a very slippery place? How every decision was the wrong decision this whole time? You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one, awake, when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused you will despise their form. The answer to the question is that the prosperity of the wicked is short-lived. It's illusionary. God may seem inactive, but he is very active. And the security of the wicked is not security because God will bring them down in the moment he wants to. Look what uh, Paul writes in the New Testament, Galatians 6, 7, 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God is not mocked. If you defy God, if you fight against God, if you resist God, you will reap what you sow. Because everyone reaps what they sow. Those who sow good reap good. Those who sow evil reap evil. The God of all justice will ensure it. That's the lesson here in Haman. That you cannot fight God. 
Now, let me draw out three simple lessons here that I think we can apply to our lives. Lesson number one is pray. When does everything change in the book of Esther? It's when Esther and all the Jews fast and pray. I mean, did you see the series of coincidences here? And, and I mean, why does the king welcome Esther into his presence when he could have just as easily put her to death for not waiting, as the law said, to wait to be summoned to him? And why does Esther wait to make her request until the king is reminded of what Mordecai did for him. And why couldn't Mordecai, uh, why couldn't the king go to sleep that night? And when he asked for the records, the very records about Mordecai's service to him that's been unrewarded is read. And, and why does Haman show up at that very moment when the king is looking for somebody to help him reward Mordecai, why does he show up then? And when Haman goes home and is just so sorrowful, why is it at that moment that the people from the palace show up to take him to dinner? And why does Esther appeal to the queen as his helpless wife in need of his protection, the only way that he would have responded? And why does Haman die in the way that he planned to kill Mordecai. The very time, the very way. People prayed. People prayed. If you're concerned about our country, if you're concerned about our city, if you're concerned about your own life, pray. And you might even throw in fasting. God loves to answer the prayers of his children much more than we love to make them. You have not because you ask not. That means there's all kinds of things that God wants to do for you if you'd only ask. I can think of nothing that I've prayed for over time and kept praying for that God hasn't done. So the first lesson here is no matter how dark things look, pray. Because God is still in control. And that's the big lesson here of Esther. We never hear of God by name, but we see God in the background protecting his people as he promised to do. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is leave vengeance in God's hands. Leave vengeance in God's hands. American Christians tend to see God as all mercy and no justice. And so we think when people do bad things, well, God's just not doing anything about it because he loves them too. And so i got to do something about it. I've got to be the judge and jury. So somebody cuts me off on the, uh, on the freeway, so I've got to tailgate them just to let them know they were wrong. And somebody disrespects you, and you say, i got to let her know she can't get away with that. And somebody hurts you, and you say, I will never let anyone get close to me again. And because we sit in God's seat of judgment, 
we hurt ourselves because we're not equipped to sit in that seat. Paul writes in Romans 12, 19, Never take your own revenge, beloved, for it is written, Vengeance belongs to the Lord. I will repay, says the Lord. And when I'm tempted to judge somebody or resent somebody, think that they're getting away with something, I see this is a test of faith. Do I really believe that vengeance belongs to God? Do I really believe that whatsoever a man sows, this he will reap? And that God is far more able to judge that person than I am? This will, this will help you to escape bitterness and anger and impatience when you see that God's job is to correct other people, not ours. Leave vengeance to God. Now, preachers are supposed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So I've comforted you. Here's the affliction. Don't be deceived by little sins. Don't be deceived by little sins. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap, whether good or evil. Does that apply to non-believers? Yes. Does that apply to believers? Yes. It applies to all of us that grace does not free you from the consequences of your choices. Somebody said that we, we sow our wild oats and then we pray for a crop failure. And it, it doesn't work that way. And the quality of our life is determined by what we sow. If, if I don't initiate toward people, I will not have any more friends than my non-believing neighbor who does not initiate towards people. If I overdo food and drink, I will be just as unhealthy as my unbelieving neighbor who overindulges. If I yell at my kids and my grandkids, they're not going to like me any more than my non-believing neighbor's kids and grandkids like him when he yells at them. See the point? That grace does not free us from the consequences of our actions. Grace gives us power to make the right sowing. To sow the things that bring life and joy. That the life we're living today is pretty much the result of the choices we've made in the past. Good or bad. Colossians 3.25, God says, uh, says, the wrong that a man does, he will repay, be repaid. And that without partiality, meaning it works the same for believer or non-believer. So here's the problem. We tend to look at sin in, in terms of size, right? Got your big sins, and we're not going to do any of those. We got your mid-sized sins, and we'll just do a few of those every year. But then you got your little sins, you know, your, your kind of meaningless sins, sins that don't really matter. And we think, well, they're harmless. They're harmless. I mean, what, what difference could an extra drink make? 
or if I just leave that off my tax form, or, uh, you know, just that one little outburst of anger, um, or skipping that assignment, the wages of sin is death. And that's true of big sins, and that's true of little sins. They all bring death. They all put Christ on the cross. Jesus bore God's wrath for our big sins, and he bore God's wrath for our tiny little who even notices sins because sin is abhorrent to God. And if God, we could see sin the way we will see it one day, we would be horrified by the things that we did because we thought they were small and they weren't small. Small sins almost always turn into big sins. Isn't that true? We're blinded slowly by slowly. So all this to say, don't be deceived by the size of sin. The wages of sin is always death. That's the only thing sin can pay in, is death, destruction, ruin, misery. That's the idea here. That's why the gospel is such great news. Because Jesus doesn't come just to clean up the the spider webs. He comes to kill the spider. He comes to free us from our sins. He, He lives the life we failed to live so that we can be credited with his perfect record of righteousness by God when we put our faith in him. He dies the death we all deserve. He bears the wrath of God for our sins in his own body. And then he rises from the dead so we can live forever. And a Christian is a person who believes that and asks Christ to be Lord of their lives. And when Christ comes into our life, he frees us from the power of sin that lives in all of our bodies. And we begin to learn how to sow righteousness, which leads to the abundant life, rather than to sow sin, which continues to lead to death. Does that make sense? Haman is a great example of you reap what you sow. That God only gives you so much rope before he yanks it back. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the story of Esther. Give us wisdom to see uh, the destructive things in our own lives that we're sowing so that we can repent and experience your life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.